evening and welcome to From the Frontline. Tonight we're going to be discussing warfare and the word. I'm Hunter Combs in the studio again with Dr. Peter Hammond. Dr. Hammond, it's good to have you. It's always good to deal with what the word says. Mm. Now, Peter, when I first uh, met you, I was looking to court your daughter and I remember receiving an application form to court your daughter. And one of the questions on there is what self-defense training you have. And it asks something about uh, my views on, well, what, how is it worded? I forget. Yeah, basically what skills and abilities have to be able to protect and defend my daughter and if you'd be willing to kill to protect my daughter. Yeah, that's right. And at the time, the funny thing is, is I was a pacifist. And I remember you saying something along the lines, now I know, I believe you'd be willing to die for my daughter, but would you be willing to kill for her? <laughs> and I thought that was a funny question. <laughs> yes, because the fact is, let's face it, if you've got a lifelong commitment to protect your mm. wife and children, being willing to die for them is fine for a few minutes, but then mm. who's going to protect them thereafter? So exactly. if you're facing real serious threats, and we looked at, is it right to fight and all of that, mm. when is it right to fight, uh, and last week's program, people can go back to that, that yes, we need to be, a father must be willing to protect his family, and um, if mm. you are not making provision for the members of your family, you've denied the faith and you're worse than infidel. Mm. So... Uh, that was where it came from. Mm. One Timothy five eight, <laughs> and so this was an issue I really wrestled over. Was okay. What does the Bible actually teach about this? And I remember I was in an ethics class, and one of my assignments was we had to debate two sides of an argument, and I was put on the issue of pacifism, and I was meant to defend why biblically we can go to war. And I was a pacifist at the time, and so <laughs> there's lots of there's lots of ways that I've actually had to sort of think through this issue. And since I've come to see, okay, actually the Bible isn't against war. It's having the appropriate response in times of war. How should Christians view these things? We shouldn't be bloodthirsty. Yeah, let's go to war. Let's kill them all. No, no, no. There should actually be a balanced approach. There's still the teaching of Christ, blessed are the peacemakers. So war isn't, it's not something that should delight us, but it's sort of a necessary evil of living in a fallen world, that this is something that has to take place. So tonight we're going to unpack this. Dr. Hammonds has some things he wants to share with us. So why don't you share with us, why does God allow wars to take place. In Judges chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, we read God's strategy for complacency. So, Judges 3, verse 1 to 2. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So, here we see God's strategy for complacency. God's strategy is to train his people through conflict. We need to be taught to trust God in the most extreme situations, even in battle. And this is to be purged, to be purified, and to be prepared as soldiers of Christ. Exodus 15 verse 3 to 4 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. So why does God allow wars? Well, it's one way of getting rid of complacency. Have you noticed how apathy is in short supply in Ukraine these days? Mm. Uh, that the people are going through conflict. They search God. Suddenly there's a rush on Bible shops. People are seeking God. So even in what man means for evil, God can use it for some good. Mm. And so is this a result, would you see, of the fall? Uh, this is the direct result that sin is now in the world, and this is sort of one aspect of God's judgment on sin in the world, or it one is, result of sin in the world? It's definitely judgment. part of God's comprehensive judgment on sin. It's a result, and it's a judgment of God on man, because um, even the fact that we die 
is mm. a result of God's complex judgment on sin. And all of us as Adam and Eve's descendants uh, share in that judgment and those consequences. But of course, there's redemption in the second Adam, Christ. Mm. And you even see it in the prophets that God is raising up a nation to judge his people, Israel. And so he uses the Babylonians, I think in Habakkuk, it talks about this. He uses the Babylonians to come and judge Israel. But then afterwards, he's going to judge Babylon. For, their, for them going to war and their evil and actually coming against the people of God. So God uses it as a means of judgment, but he also he holds everyone accountable for their sinful uh, engagement in these things. So I think there is a way we see God's sovereignty at work, but also God judging sin, and it's a result of the fall. So can a believer then be a soldier? Can they engage in warfare? And how does that work? Well, Deuteronomy, which is a very important book in the Old Testament, which is the second giving of the law, we have this passage in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1 to 4. When you go out to battle against the enemies, not even if, mm. when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, so it shall be, when you're on the verge of battle, that the chaplain shall approach and shall speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For I, the Lord your God, is he who is with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. So the Bible takes it for granted that there will be a time for war. Hmm. And so this is something that is going to take place. So a believer can be a soldier. In fact, it's expected that at some point they, the Israelites here are actually going to go into battle. That's the expectation of the scriptures. Uh, and so I guess the question is then when we do go into battle, how can we know are we on the right side of the battle? Is this God ordained, the side of the war that I'm on? Should I even be fighting in this war? Uh, how, can we, how can we better understand that? Yes, I mean there's many people who presume that God is on their side, uh, but actually God is not on our side. God is not on any side. The question is are we on God's side? Mm. Is that great him? Who is on the Lord's side? And when Joshua was preparing to attack Jericho, he encountered a man standing opposite him with a drawn sword, and Joshua challenged him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Mm. And the man with the drawn sword responded, Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped, and he said to him, What does my Lord say to a servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now you read all this in Joshua chapter 5, 13 to 15. So when Joshua met the pre-incarnate Christ, because this is the Lord himself, this isn't just an angel of the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord. And normally when somebody bows down and worships an angel, he's rebuked. An angel says, don't do it. I'm, I'm a creature like you. And uh, only worship God alone. But here, there's no suggestion of rebuke for Joshua falling on his face and worshiping. Hmm. And he says, what does the Lord say to a servant? And what does Yahweh say to a servant? And the command of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandal of your foot. The place you stand is holy. So uh, he met a pre-incarnate um, uh, uh, Christ. This is a Christophany, not just a theophany, but a Christophany. The Lord himself as commander-in-chief of the Lord's armies gave instructions to Joshua that he carried out so successfully in Joshua chapter 7 to conquer the Canaanite stronghold of Jericho. So 
Uh, when people ask, is God on our side? I think we should take them to Joshua 5 and remind them, no, when Josh said, are you on our side or are you for the adversaries? The answer was neither. I'm mm-hmm. the commander of the Lord, of, uh, of the army of the Lord of hosts. So uh, we must always ask ourselves, am I on God's side? And mm-hmm. is this in accordance with God's word and in accordance with God's law? Am I seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? Am I seeking to love my neighbor, which includes even loving my enemy? Uh, in the sense of wanting what, obviously there may be a time you've got to fight your enemy, but once he is captured, wounded, you're responsible to care for him, you're responsible to give medical care, you're responsible to treat a captured enemy uh, with compassion and mercy Mm. in accordance with the Geneva Convention, which is drawn from biblical concepts of even loving enemy. Obviously, we must first love our family and our neighbors to protect them from unjust attack. Uh, but then we're also duty-bound to even love our enemies. Our goal is not to hate our enemies. It might be to defeat them, uh, but at the end of that, there's still got to be compassion grace. So a Christian soldier must be asking, am I on the Lord's side? Hmm. And that sort of goes into what we spoke about last week with the whole just war theory. Like scripturally, what, what means are there or what duties do we have to sort of consider as we engage in warfare? And there are certain sort of safeguards that many Christians have thought of over the centuries. This was first sort of pinned by St. Augustine and uh, his work, The City of God, and we spoke about that last week. Uh, so I guess that leads us a bit into this this next question. What does the Bible teach about military duties? How, how should we engage in these duties uh, as believers? Yes, uh, just uh, Augustine's just war concept is there must be a just cause, there must be just conduct in a war, and there must be a just conclusion to the war. Uh, but yes, well, one example is when you start looking at wars in the Bible, you get in Judges chapter 5, Deborah, in her Song of Victory, rebukes those who'd failed to fight for freedom. Why did you sit amongst the sheepfolds to listen to the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben had great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore, stayed in his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Nephtali also on the height to the battlefield. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So plainly, uh, there are times when it is our duty to stand up, to step out, to volunteer, to to fight the good fight of faith, to do what's got to be done, to defend the defenseless, to rescue the, the perishing, to uh, do what must be done for the purpose of justice and uh, for deliverance of those who are being led away to death. So Judges 5 is a good place to go when uh, people may think that, oh, well, you know, I'm just a pacifist or conscience mm-hmm. objector. Well, there's a time when you can't just walk by on the other side of the road. You've got to get involved and do something. Mm. So you'd say there's actually uh, a call to actually go to war at times, that if we're seeing in great injustices take place, um, that we should actually engage in warfare. Is that right? Yes, so there are examples, um, even preemptive strikes on occasions when there's imminent threat. So on various occasions, God not only permitted war, but even commanded. So think of Judges 6 and 7. God directed Gideon to defeat the Midianites and rescue Israel from their power. And 1 Samuel 11, the Spirit of God led Saul, the first king of Israel and Israel, to rescue the people of Jabesh Gilead. That's quite an inspiring story. In 1 Samuel 14, we read of how the Lord rescued Israel from the Philistines by the faith and by the courage and initiative of Prince Jonathan, 
who went up towards the enemy saying, perhaps the Lord will give us victory, and actually did. Um, 1 Samuel 15, the Lord commanded Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, who were his implacable enemies. All of us should know 1 Samuel 17, when the young shepherd boy, David, was enabled by the Lord to defeat the Philistine giant Goliath and uh, with a sling and stones. Um, uh, David sought the Lord's will and was guided to attack the Philistines, we read, 2 Samuel 5. So in the Bible, military defense against aggressors is given the same status as capital punishment for murderers. Nobody wants to execute anyone, or they shouldn't want to, but there's a time and a place, just as when you have a gangrenous limb that's threatening the life of the whole body. You don't want to cut off somebody's limb, but sometimes to save the whole body, that's necessary. So capital punishment, amputation of a gangrenous limb, national defense against aggressors, these there's a time and place. And that's why Proverbs 21 verse 15 says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Hmm. And so warfare can be one of those judgments God sends, which is to bring justice and to bring deliverance and even terror to the evildoers. So hmm. there are times when wars are actually God's judgment upon um, the wicked and a means of discipling his people. Hmm. And so you speak there about how God at times allows capital punishment and war. And I think that brings up a thought that many people have thinking, well, but doesn't the Ten Commandments say you shall not murder? I mean, isn't going to war, you're actually engaging in some sort of national level of murder. And the same thing with capital punishment, well, we're not meant to murder. Uh, so how would, how would you think through that? Yes, there's issue? no doubt that sometimes um, war is legalized murder. Uh, and there are there are times when I mean you just think of bombing of cities and and hideous things targeting of civilians. So there's there's no doubt that that a lot of wars are nothing mm. but murder. But in the Bible, in Hebrew, there are six different words used for kill. So for example, there is what you read in the sixth command: "You shall not commit murder." Murder is a distinctly different word from homicide, which speaks about killing a person accidentally. You're still responsible, mm. but it wasn't deliberate premeditated murder. For example, you chopping wood in the forest and the axe head flies off and mm. hits the other person. I mean, it wasn't premeditated, but you're still responsible. Maybe mm. there was even negligence involved, but but the point is homicide is a different category. Then there's a different word for killing in battle and there's a different word for executing someone who's been duly uh, found guilty mm. by uh, the judges of a crime. There's a different word for killing of animals and there's a different word for sacrificing. So uh, plainly, uh, you, you have to distinguish this, even if your English translation doesn't have all the shades of meaning of the mm. Hebrew, when you can see God commands, you shall not commit murder. But then in the very next chapter, it's telling you that you must execute murderers. So obviously mm. executing murderers is not the same thing as, as murder. It's murder, yeah. And then it's even saying when you go to battle. Well, okay, so that's considering. So. And then it even speaks about um, killing of animals for food or for sacrifice, which is again, another word mm. and so on. So, and then there's self-defense mm. in Exodus 22 verse two, if a thief breaks into your house and he is struck so that he dies, there's no guilt for his bloodshed. So that's speaking about a self-defense issue. It, this isn't speaking about a murderer or a rapist or child mm. abuser coming to him. It's just a thief. But it's dark. You can't tell. You can't tell if he's got a weapon. Uh, in the dark, you lash out and you strike the man so he dies. And the light comes in the morning and so on. You find, oh, I mean, he wasn't even armed. It's just a thief breaking into that. But it's still considered self-defense because you could not tell 
in the dark. Mm. Plus, nobody should be breaking into your house anyway. Mm. So uh, there's a whole lot of things in there, and the Bible speaks of self-defense in a different category. So there's a very big difference between killing and self-defense is justified. Killing and warfare can be justified, depending on a variety of circumstances. Uh, sacrifice and killing of animals for food and uh, executing of a murderer. These are all different words from you shall not commit murder. Hmm. And so does it come down to then the motivation or so the intention or murder is this premeditated, this hatred, oh, I just hate this person, I love this person. You're sort of thinking, how can I get back at them? How can I Mm -hmm. kill this person? Whereas maybe the other instances of self-defense, well, you didn't go in saying, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. It's, wow, I'm now put in a situation. I have to defend my family or I I need to defend this innocent person. And now a, a... you kill the person in self-defense, but it's not premeditated. Is that sort of the nuance of it? The Motivation's intent? important, but it's not the only fact. It's, it's, mm. it's the circumstance and the, and the target. Is this an innocent person or is this a guilty murderer who's been taken through due process, had his day in court? Mm. We've looked at all sides of the evidence. The judges have determined this person is a serial killer or whatever it is, and he, he uh, must, in accordance with the law, uh, be executed. And again, also in, in, in a time of self-defense or national defense, your goal isn't to kill the other side. It's to stop the threat. It's to defend. Mm. Uh, as it's said in um, many military books, the soldier doesn't fight because he hates what's in front of him. He fights because he loves what's behind him. Hmm. And that should be the correct motivation, that Hmm. the goal isn't to kill, the goal is to defend and obviously to use minimum force and to even be gracious to defeated enemies because our goal is not to harm the enemy. We even love our enemies to the extent that once we've neutralized their threat, we want to give them the medical care, the food uh, and and the gospel. Uh, Hmm. We we do not wish ill on our enemy. In fact, we look forward to the day when our enemy can be our friend and ally. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it, you shouldn't actually, I think that's a good sort of principle. You don't go to war because you hate what's in front of you. You go to war because you love what's behind you. And that sort of feeds into um, some criteria that people have come up with for deciding the specifics of just war. And they're talking about some other issues we should keep in mind, such as avoidance of evil means, like will captured or defeated enemies be treated with justice and compassion or are our own soldiers being treated justly in captivity? And then also good faith. Is there a genuine desire for restoration of peace and eventual living in harmony with the attacking nation? So there's actually, we should actually love peace. We should be like the peacemakers like God calls us to. And so we need to have the right attitude as we think about warfare as Christians. This shouldn't be something that delights us and we get all excited. Oh, yes, our nation's going to war. Rather, it should actually grieve us oh, that, that it's come to such an extent that we couldn't resolve this conflict in a better way. It's just the conflict's building and building and building. There's been, they've tried to resolve this and now it's come to such a point that now there's no other no other means to resolve this than to engage in war. Which brings up the role of propaganda because all too often what you're seeing is people don't understand the situation. They don't understand the history or the context. All they understand is the narrative on the mainstream, lamestream media, which is often just pushing out a propaganda narrative, which totally ignores context and demonize the enemy mm-hmm. and makes it into, you know, we're totally in the right and the other side's completely irredeemably wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet sometimes what's being ignored is attempts to avoid war that the other side has made, which has been spurned on this side. I mean, mm-hmm. you just take like uh, in the recent conflict where we've um, – where we had uh, the Russians actually asking American president to give a guarantee in January of this year that no missiles would be put in Ukraine. And he 
American President Biden flat refused to give such a guarantee, which mm. could have alleviated one of the threats going to war, uh, a promise that uh, that Ukraine would be neutral and not join NATO. I mean, this was asked for right up to February. Uh, the idea that will Biden meet with Putin to discuss a way out of this crisis in uh, February, which he refused to do. Mm. So sometimes ignoring uh, opportunities, or even once the war's going, uh, the questions are being made, you know, can we have peace? In fact, there have been three peace talks already between Ukrainians and Russians. And uh, uh, amongst the different requirements for an end to the war is guarantee of neutrality, not joining NATO, no missiles in Ukraine. I mean, these are, uh, I would think that's preferable to accede to that than to allow your cities to be turned into war zones and rubble mm. and have civilians uh, being handed out Molotov cocktails and uh, mm. arming pe people in civilian clothes with weapons because that's against the Geneva Convention too. There shouldn't be a blurring between combatant and non-combatant. Mm. And so when the civilians are being given weapons of war and they're still wearing civilian clothes, now you've blurred the line. And now mm. it's not that every person in a uniform is a potential target, as you're on our side of that side. It's now even the civilians are potential targets. Mm. He might be having a f petrol bomb or That's a right. weapon. And so th the danger, uh, similarly in warfare, you've sometimes had uh, on both sides that decide this city will be an open city. So, for example, in 1940, during the battle uh, on the Western Front, the French agreed to, to evacuate Paris. So there was no shelling, bombing of Paris at all in 1940. Paris was occupied without resistance because it was considered as too beautiful a city we can't allow it to be destroyed in, mm. in, in bombing. Same was done with Rome. And when the Americans were attacking after D-Day, uh, the Germans decided to evacuate Paris without any... They could have turned to Stalingrad street fighting, but they decided mm. we can't do this, the city must not be bombed, and evacuated it so that there was no bombing or shelling of these mm. cities in the war. But in Ukraine, they're deciding, no, we're going to fight street by street, which condemns the entire city to becoming like a Stalingrad, one big mess. And this is people's homes, this is churches, this is museums. Mm. Uh, so in warfare, you've got to ask, again, the just war thing, it, are the risks um, and the costs of this war worth the potential outcome? And mm. what's, what chance do you have of success? If you've got limited chance of success, it's better to not even go into the war. As, as the Lord said, before you go to war, count the cost. And mm. uh, um, because if you if you can see the cost of this war is going to exceed any possible benefit, it's probably better to just find negotiated settlement. There's there's always a better way. War is meant to be a last resort, and you've got no alternatives. And I would say, for example, in this present conflict, I don't know that they followed the just war principles of Saint Augustine, the biblical mm. principles of counting the cost. And I'm deeply concerned knowing what the Hague Rules of Warfare and the Geneva Convention give, which are thoroughly Christian in their concepts, mm. that when you start to arm civilians and so on, you are, you are breaking a vital part of the rules of warfare, which is you don't target civilians. Mm. But if civilians are now the means of throwing firebombs on yeah. your forces and shooting them in the back, well, now the civilians are moving from a sacrosanct don't touch him to a potential military target. Mm. And that is just open invitation to atrocities and how much suffering and how many innocent people suffer as a result of such foolish, short-sighted decisions. Mm. And what's going to happen, say these civilians who are armed now start fighting, the, the soldiers on the other side are going to start seeing every civilian as 
a potential target. So someone gets jumpy and they accidentally shoot an unarmed civilian. And I mean, because they have so many civilians there who are armed. I mean, I think similar things happened in um, the wars and the war in Afghanistan. Like they would arm children and young children would be given uh, heavy artillery. And then, of course, well, what do you do? It's a, it's a kid with a machine gun or something. Uh, do you do you defend yourself or not? And so it becomes the blurring of lines are very, very, very ugly. Yeah. That's why the Hague Rules of Warfare and Geneva Conventions are in place. And uh, they're there for very good reason. If one sticks to it, one limits the, the huge amount of human suffering. And the Red Cross has been doing tremendously wonderful work. Um, I, I think it's just so important that we go back to looking at what are the Hague Rules of Warfare and what are the, the Geneva Convention requirements? Because right now I see it being violated in a hideous way and it, only bad's going to come out of that. Hmm. So how should we as Christians uh, engage in prayer as we see times of war, and especially now that we see the war in the Ukraine? How, how should we be praying then into these things? Well, we should open a Bible in the middle, and there's the biggest book in the Bible, the middle book of the Bible, the Psalms. And most of the Psalms are written by soldiers like King David, and much of the Psalms are written to God as prayers for guidance in times of war or hymns of thanksgiving to the Lord for victory in battle. So you just take um, – just take – Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The pangs of death surround me. The snares of death confront me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and he cried out to my God. He heard my voice from the temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled and the foundations of the hills quaked and were shaken because he was angry. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows. He scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance. He vanquished him. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemies, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support, for by you I can run against the troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. As for my God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. It is God who arms me with his strength. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. I've pursued my enemies. I've overtaken them. Neither have I turned back. I've wounded them. They have fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges and subdues the peoples. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up against those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you. Amongst the Gentiles, I will sing praises to your name. Now, that's just one psalm, Psalm 18. And there's so many of these psalms. War psalms are the Prince of Peace. And, and I've found, no matter how discouraged, depressed, upset, fearful, angry, enraged, whatever it may be, when I turn to psalms, God channels my thoughts and my emotions and my prayers in a constructive way. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible. So in mm. any times of distress, that's why when you see the Gideons handing out their Bibles, they might be in New Testament, but they always have Psalms and mm. Proverbs. We need wisdom from Proverbs. We need worship from the Psalms. And so, so often when you don't know where to turn, you just turn to the Psalms. And the Psalms, it 
channels even the most negative, destructive emotions in a constructive direction to the throne of God. So I'd say in any war, um, you can do uh, no better than to start your day with Psalms. Read a psalm, pray a psalm, make it your own psalm. And for those back home, who, how do I pray for my loved ones in, in this conflict? Pray the psalms. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The psalms, we turn these into prayers and we actually use it as a guide to help us. And I mean, we can pray other scriptures as well, but the psalms comes in a context with a man who was engaged in warfare, uh, who knew it well, and yet he's turning to God for help mm -hmm. and strength in those times. So what can we what can we learn from wars? What purposes can there actually be for warfare? Well, wars can be ordained by God as a means of restraining evil, judging wickedness, purging sin, purifying God's own people. So when God's people rebelled against his law, God allowed them to be defeated and enslaved or exiled by the Midianites, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, and others. And, I mean, you read a lot of this in, in Joshua and Judges and the Kings and Chronicles. We, we could see again and again Jeremiah. We could see that God can work through these wars. So, for example, uh, Deuteronomy 28 tells us the blessings of obedience, the curse of disobedience. And amongst the curses of disobedience is that you'll be invaded and taken over and ruled over by your enemies. Mm. Uh, amongst the blessings of obedience will be that God will give you victory in battle. So, uh, we see, for example, Leviticus 26, that defeat can be a consequence of disobedience. I mean, defeat isn't always that. Sometimes it may, the people might have had a just cause. They were defeated by a stronger foe. But uh, it doesn't mean that the cause wasn't just, just because they're defeated and they're suffering. And that's been so in many times in history. Uh, but defeat can be a consequence of disobedience. So Leviticus 26, 14, but if you do not obey me, and you do not observe all my commands. And if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commands, but you break my covenants, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. And those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues. So we can certainly see that victory can come from the Lord. Defeat can be a consequence of disobedience. Uh, we should not always see it so, but God can certainly use wars as judgment, as a means of restraining evil, but always purging of sin and purifying of his people. Uh, let me tell you, as someone who's been involved in eight wars as a missionary, I have many, many, many a time made right with God. And so, you know, when you know that you could be killed in a moment hmm. from stepping on a landmine, artillery barrage, rocket attack, um, aerial bombardments and so on, it makes you, your devotional life is at a fever pitch that you could not imagine in peacetime. Mm. There is, a, I remember even the atheist in our unit suddenly getting very serious about attending the prayer meetings and, and <laughs> asking for prayer because uh, unless a person's been in a situation where, you know, sudden death is, is very likely possibility, um, you don't know what it's like to really pray until you've faced serious uh, mm. uh, threat of death like that. My mother, who's a nurse, said that... Um, when you see in the movies people going into surgery, a major surgery in hospitals on, without a prayer, she said, that doesn't happen. She said in her experience, people always calling for the chaplain, asking for prayer. Nobody went into the operating theater without prayer. I mean, maybe some do these days. It got a lot more secular. But in her experience as a nurse for many years, she said, um, in her, people going into surgery are always praying and wanting prayer. And mm. uh, uh, I can say going into battle, there's not many atheists in foxholes. Mm. Yeah. They suddenly get uh, very religious. 
bent to them. And so we see that God sometimes allows uh, the consequences of disobedience is that you'll be defeated at times, and consequences of obedience is that you'll have victory in battle. It's not always a given, but what is it? What does that teach us about who God is? What does it teach us about His nature then? Mm. Well, the Scripture reveals that God is a God of war and a God of peace, because God is primarily a holy God of justice. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So, Jeremiah twenty-one verse twelve: read, execute judgments in the morning, deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn, so that no one can quench it, because of the evil of your doing. So. God is not a pacifist. God, who's the creator of all life, determines whether you live or die and when. And through the flood, God killed everybody on earth except Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark. Uh, So God wasn't a pacifist. And God killed every Egyptian firstborn as a judgment on Egypt in order to free his people on the night of the Passover. And God destroyed the, the Egyptian army, the charities, in the Red Sea, Exodus 14, the Lord caused the earth to open up and swallow Korah and his rebels, number 16. God killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who were attacking Jerusalem, 2 Kings 19. God killed Ananias and Sapphira because of their lying. And it was said by Apostle Peter, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God. Um, that's in Acts 5. King Herod was struck dead because of his pride, Acts 12, verse 23. And we read in Ezekiel 14 verse 21, that God continues to use my four severe judgments, the sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. So along with plague and wild animals and famine, the sword or warfare can be a judgment of God, Ezekiel 14, 21, in order to lead people to repent. Deuteronomy 32 verse 39, now see that I, even I am he, there's no God like me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. So plainly, God is not a pacifist, and um, this might be a bit of a shock to some people, but the Lord Jesus is not a pacifist either. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Our Lord Jesus may have been meek, but he was never mild. Uh, His teaching was powerful, dynamic, direct, uncompromising. I mean, he's a tough carpenter from Nazareth. He is able to walk 40 days fasting in the desert and receive 40 lashes from the brutal Roman lip rip and still survive and he could walk hundreds of kilometers in a blazing palestinian inhospitable terrain he could walk through a murderous mob with such a presence that no one dared stop him read in luke 4 and when our lord saw how corrupt men were desecrated in the temple with their money grabbing greed he made a whip and overturned the tables and drove them forcefully from god's house so not exactly passive but bear in mind the first time jesus came as the savior the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and all who Turn from sin and trust in Christ, following him in obedience are saved. But when Jesus comes again, he will not return as the lamb. He'll return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll return as the eternal judge. And all who've not repented and obeyed will be eternally condemned and punished. So the scripture teaches us that when our Lord Jesus returns to earth, he will come as a conqueror. He will annihilate the force of Antichrist. When Jesus returns to this earth, it will be as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords. And we are told in Revelation 14 that rivers of blood will flow from the carnage of mankind's rebellion against God. Those who declare war on God will lose. I mean, make no mistake. And you read about this in Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat in him faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were 
many crowns. He was clothed with a robe dripped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth went a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule him with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Hmm. So, what I mean, you, you read all these and you see this picture of God, and many people would say, well, well, that's just sort of the God of the Old Testament, and you now God's sort of tame in the New Testament. But as you've shown us, this is actually the New Testament as well. Our this last book in just, the New Testament, Revelation, yeah. yes. <laughs> this isn't just the Old Testament. You actually see a consistency of God's character. God is a God of justice, and God is a God of love and mercy. So what about the passage, and many people will bring this up, blessed are the peacemakers, and how, how would you understand that from this perspective? Well, notice it's not blessed are the pacifists. Mm. Uh, you have to make peace. It takes action. In fact, um, I think Colt brought out a forty-five caliber revolver called the Peacemaker. I think that was the kind of idea that it had, that, um, that you've got to make peace. And uh, it takes action. So for those pacifists hoping for worldwide peace, listen to the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so to a large extent, our Lord brings division, actually. I know we, we love the unity message, and there is a place for the Lord praying that his people would be one and uh, by your love the world will know that, that you're mine but but there's another sense in which the Lord brings division where even members of a family can be split against one another because of their commitment to Christ or opposition to him so um, blessed are the peacemakers yes but not pacifists um, hmm. sometimes you've got to have your sleeves rolled up and be willing to get your hands dirty doing what's got to be done protecting the defenseless and uh, delivering those who are being led away to death. Hmm. And another favorite one people use is, well, what about the passage that talks about if someone strikes you on the cheek, lend him the other cheek as well? That's a good, relevant passage. So what does it say? If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, so you, uh, uh, you should turn to him the other. Now, it doesn't say if somebody stabs you in the one cheek, let him stab you in the heart as mm -hmm. well. It doesn't say if he attacks your mother, let him attack your sister too. Uh, it doesn't say if, if they nuke one city, let them nuke another. <laughs> you know, it's a slap. So in other words, don't fight over an insult. So mm -hmm. let's this harks back to the days when people would slap another person in the face, maybe with a glove and slam down the glove. I demand satisfaction, pistols at dawn or dueling with swords or whatever. And so people would fight over an insult and mm -hmm. that's pride and it's not worth fighting over pride. So the Bible forbids uh, fighting for pride. And therefore, if somebody slaps you, well, so what? Um, and it's not worth fighting over. But that's not the same thing as as suddenly writing off all the passages in the Bible that, that allow and command self-defense, family defense, national defense. So we need to be balanced here. Slapping on the cheek, again, it's not even not even a punching, it's slapping. Hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's not a threat to your life or limb. Hmm. So what are, the, what are some examples then of soldiers in the Bible that we see? Um, we've looked at a lot of different aspects of this, how God's nature is seen uh, as he allows and even commands us to engage in warfare. Um, but yeah, what are some examples then well, we see of soldiers? Well, the earliest war recorded in the Bible is Genesis 14 and Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the faithful resorted to military action to rescue Lot from the four heathen kings and beat them. I mean, mm. uh, Abraham must have had some pretty well-trained servants to have been able to, um, gee, 
just a man who's got these massive herds in the wilderness, and yet he's able to go in military action and defeat four heathen kings and rescue Lot, uh, amongst others, um, from their power. So Abraham uh, fought. Uh, Joshua was, of course, a mighty man of God, mighty soldier, commander of the Israelite army in the battles against the Amalekites in Exodus 17, in the conquest of the Promised Land. The book of Joshua is full of that. And, of course, King David, <laughs> a man described as a man of the gods and heart, the writer of much of the Psalms, a great soldier, Israel's greatest king. And David could say, as is recorded in Psalm 144, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one whom I take refuge, who subdues the nations under me. So Abraham, Joshua, King David, you can go through Barak and Samson and Jephthah in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. But bear in mind also, the four centurions mentioned in the New Testament, the four Roman officers, are all commended in some way or another. Luke 7, Luke 23, Acts 19, Acts 27. The centurion at Capernaum was praised for his faith. Our Lord said he hasn't come across such faith in all of Israel. Hmm. Uh, Cornelius in the Italian regiment had the honor of being the first Gentiles to be baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So throughout the Bible, the work, and the calling of souls are frequently mentioned, but not with a suggestion that they could be in and of themselves dishonorable or unchristian. And John the Baptist, when he was asked by the soldiers, what should we do? He didn't suggest they should leave the army. John the Baptist responded, do not intimidate anyone. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. So Luke 3.14, we see John describing how they should be good soldiers. And so... The Christian life is often likened to many acceptable, honorable occupations, like that of a farmer and an athlete and a soldier and a citizen, a pilgrim and a soldier. So many aspects of a soldier's life, like a spirit of self-sacrifice and disciplined loyalty, are commended. And uh, therefore, uh, we see in the Bible not any soldiers, but we see an assumption that there will be Christian soldiers. And there's no suggestion in the Bible that you can't be a soldier. I mean, there's some professions that are totally dishonorable. I mean, prostitutes tax collectors. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but being a soldier is often lifted up as, as a good and commendable um, mark to, to try and emulate. Hmm. And so what's your message for those who are listening who may actually be soldiers today? Uh, what would you want them to take home from this recording? The verse that my pastor, Doc Watson, gave me at the night of my baptism was 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 to 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the life, affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So we should seek to please our commanding officer. So uh, we must be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Our Lord Jesus also declared in John 15 verse 13, Greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life for his friend. So to courageous soldiers who have been true to this teaching of Christ, we owe thanks and gratitude and Joshua 1 verse 7 to 9 has got the standing orders for all Christian soldiers. Joshua 1 verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, command you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. Then you will be able to make your way prosperous and you will have great success. Have I not command you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
Hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us, Dr. Hammond. For those who are listening who want to think more carefully about these things, where can they go for some further resources on the topic of Christians and warfare? If you go into www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, that's our website, you'll find articles on warfare in the world, uh, when it's right to fight, audios, videos, PowerPoints uh, on these things. And uh, The Christian at War is a book that I wrote, which is also available in German, in French, in Spanish, uh, in Afrikaans. So uh, these are, are publications you can get hold of that could help you. We've got biblical principles for Africa. We've got some great historic uh, books written by Christian soldiers, which you could get hold of, like More Than Conquerors by General Shai Mulder. So these are all available from Christian Liberty Books, christianlibertybooks.co.za, or write to admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope this has helped you think a lot more carefully over the issue of warfare and the Word of God and how God sees us and what the Scriptures have to say about this. And we do hope that you would go and study the Scriptures and see that these things are so. Don't just take our word for it. We've opened up the Scriptures. We've looked at a lot of these things. But look through these things yourself and come to understand that actually these are the things that God calls us to as Christians. But we want to have the right heart, a heart that of a peacemaker, one who actually wants to see peace made in the world, even as we engage in these things. So thank you so much for joining us. Good night and God bless.